Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel. In the United States and around the world, my name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jean, instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church, Dr. Tommy Keene, academic dean and professor of New Testament here at RTS, and Dr. Gray Sutanto, professor of systematic theology. And we're trying out something that we have never done in the life of this podcast today. So if there's any technical issues, bear with us, but we are all sitting in the same room as we speak. Live. Live in the same room, recording off the same mic. And this is a joy, brothers, to be with you all together. So good to be here. Great to have you here, Gray. Gray got here about a week and a half ago, and uh, we're happy to say that his uh, wife, Indita, is going to be joining him soon. Probably by the time this airs, she will already be in the country, Lord willing. That's right, Lord willing. So we're all here, Um, and we are wrapping up. It's fitting because we're coming all together to wrap up this series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, We started this in the fall. We've been going through them one by one. And now in the wintertime, we get a chance to wrap it up. We just wrapped up the 10th commandment during our last episode. And um, we are now going to just kind of talk through, again, having walked through the 10 commandments, what is it, what role do the 10 commandments play in the Christian life? One thing you may have noticed, uh, and this may have even surprised some of you, is that we don't talk about the law. We don't talk about the 10 commandments as merely condemnatory. In other words, we haven't spoken of the merely as pointers that point us to Christ, though they definitely do that. Um, But we've actually talked about them in different ways, uh, still being uh, instructional, uh, not only for society, but also for the Christian life. And so what we want to do is we reflect on this, go back to something we talked about in the first episode on the Ten Commandments, which was the the different uses of the law. We want to recap those and then just unpack a little bit of what that means in the Christian life. So The three uses of the law usually come out of the systematic theology department, Dr. Sutanto. So let me go ahead and start with you. Can you give us a recap on the three uses and um, maybe even zero in a little bit on that third use, because that's the one that's probably uh, the most, you could say, controversial or maybe just the thing that most people might not be familiar with. So um, let me go ahead and turn it over to you. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for that, Scott. So the three uses of the law here we have in view, first, the civil use of the law, Secondly, the pedagogical use of the law, and thirdly, the um, the third use of the law, which is really about pleasing your heavenly Father. So, the first use of the law is the civil use of the law, or I'd like to think of it as the creational use of the law. The understanding that the Ten Commandments is actually God's uh, good commands for us, for human flourishing in nature and in creation, and so the, the the Ten Commandments really is meant to help all of society, right? So we understand that. By having God at the center of, of life, by not killing your neighbor, by preserving their lives, by, by looking for their good, by not lying, by not stealing, this is actually good for the flourishing of society. And it's called a civil use because even non-Christians, I think, benefit from this. And, and by God's common grace, they still have glimmers of the ability to follow these things so that there could be relative peace and relative harmony in normal human life and normal civil society that, that even non-believers who disagree about the nature of God by God's common grace, can still follow these laws to a certain extent. The second use of the law, however, is the so-called pedagogical or Christological use of the law. The law doesn't just reflect what we as 
normal human beings, as created humans, human beings are meant to do. The law also points us to the fact that we fail to do them, that we have, by common grace, glimmers of the ability to follow these laws. We still fail, and we know by our guilty conscience that we do fail um, to obey these laws perfectly. And so the law is meant to be a teacher, a, a guide, a pedagogue to lead us to Christ, to show us that ultimately Christ is the one that fulfills the law, that we see the law, we see a gap between the law and us. And so we see our need for Jesus and a need for, for save, or a savior to redeem us from the curse and condemnation of the law. The third use of the law, however, is what I would say is the, the, the reformed emphasis is that after we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ and the spirit has regenerated us, has made us seen our need for Jesus, now we are empowered because we're regenerated new creatures to follow God and to please him as our heavenly father. Right, so the third use of the law is the main use for Christians. Uh, it presupposes our redemption in Jesus Christ, and it presupposes our regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And now as new creatures, we are able to follow God because the law is now written in our hearts. And though we still struggle with sin, there's still residual sin. We want to follow him and we want to please our Heavenly Father in that respect. And I think uh, to think on the third use of the law we refer back to the paradigm of grace restoring nature. If we think about the law being a reflection of God's good creation, God's uh, created moral order, what grace does is that it causes us to live in accordance with our created human natures, to live in accordance with God's created moral order. And so grace doesn't give us a, a sort of new ontology, so to speak, but grace causes us to live in accordance with what we were created to be. Uh, grace restores nature. So the third use of the law refers us back to the way in which we have to live in our created order. Well, that raises the question then, what do we do with these passages like what we find in Romans 7 or in Galatians where Paul is talking about the law in light of his salvation in Christ, and he's using the strong language, saying things like we, we should be dead to the law, or, or uh, you know, you know the, the law increases sin, and that kind of thing. How do we talk about the law as a positive, having a positive role in the Christian life, when Paul seems to talk about it in such strong terms um, in his letters, seeming to almost say the law is now obsolete and has no role in the Christian life anymore? Yeah, I think that's that's an important question. It's part of understanding a little bit of what Paul is doing. Paul's unique, somewhat unique language in addressing these. We got to remember that Paul is a pastor, um, and one of the things that Paul does as a pastor is minister the gospel to Gentiles, and that has a very specific tone and tenor. And there's an apologetic attached to it in light of some of the pushback from Jewish Christians at the time and at the heart then of Paul, Paul's discussion of the law is kind of what um, almost what we might call a fourth use, although I, I wouldn't want to put it among the three that that Gray mentioned there because it, it, it's, it's a little bit of different. It, if you're trying to understand the law in Paul, you got to start with the fact that Paul does not use the word law in the same way every time he uses the word law. Um, it, that's that's an exegetical mistake to assume that e even within a paragraph, Paul can switch the meaning of the word law. So in uh, Romans 7, for example, he'll say, uh, you know, one of the things that the law does is 
indicate the power of the law of sin and death. So one of the things that the commandments of God do, law meaning commandments of God, is demonstrate the law, that is to say, power of sin and death in our lives. So there he's he's equivocated on the word law. One of the ways that Paul uses the word law is to talk about covenant, the mo- in particular, uh, given his focus, the Mosaic covenant. And so you get a pretty complex view of Paul and the law. He can talk about the law individually, personally, the the didactic use of the law, uh, the pedagogical use of the law, and how it is interpreted in the Christian life. I think that's what we see in Romans 7. He can also switch and talk about the Mosaic covenant in its redemptive historical function to bring the fullness of the curse and place the fullness of that curse upon Jesus Christ. There we see the law as a kind of character in the narrative. One of the things it does as sin plays itself out in the people of God is bring the curse to fruition, a curse that is going to then be pronounced on Christ at the cross and bring about an age of new life and grace in his resurrection from the dead. So he, he can talk about the law individually. He can talk about it redemptive historically. He can talk about it positively. He can talk about it negatively. And often what we're seeing him is him shifting the focus uh, there on some different aspect. That's really important because it, it highlights even the way that the term Torah, you know, which uh, well, is, is the word that is commonly translated into namas or law in Greek. You know, the word Torah is used even in the Old Testament in this way. You know, the law can bring condemnation against Israel when it's apostate. And yet the law can also be described as you see in you know, Psalm 119. Uh, which is a, this grand, you know, the longest psalm, grand uh, reflection on the beauty of Torah. And there it's it's presented as a comforter, as, as God's presence with you. Wake up at night, and you're having night sweats and night terrors. And God's law is there to comfort yep. you when you're yep. along the way. It protects you when you're walking on the road and when you're in the valley. You know, and of course, Paul would have affirmed all of this. And every New Testament Christian would have affirmed Psalm 119's teaching. So. When you think about the law, you have to recognize that it is used in, in a variety of different ways in Paul and also throughout the rest of Scripture. So I think it's a really important distinction to make. And when Paul is talking about kind of the third use of the law, going back to kind of Gray's point, Paul will lean very heavily. He, he doesn't have a problem with talking about the commandments of God and following the word of God, but he will lean very heavily on the language of logos and spirit. Um, so when he's talking about how we grow as Christians in obedience to Jesus Christ, he, he doesn't see that as a legalistic concern. We are to grow as Christians in obedience to Jesus Christ. How do we distinguish that from legalism? Paul will lean very heavily on the life of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. We cultivate our union with Christ, our obedience to Christ, our filling with the filling of the Spirit and taking the power of the spirit upon it, being led by the spirit, Galatians 3, Galatians 5, in, in newness of life. James, by contrast, has no problem with talking about the law as the means by which that happens. But, yeah. but Paul, yeah. in his language, in his context, in his pastoral mission, leans very heavily on the language of the spirit. It's a spiritual life yeah. that we lead. Yeah, and I think the reform talk about the law in these different ways, right? So on the one hand, the law really is a means of death if we see it as the, the, the means by which we achieve salvation. Don't rely on the law for that because that's the way to death. But at the same time, the reformers sometimes talk about the law as the way of salvation. Now that you have been saved, 
this is the way by which you should you should you should walk. And so this is why you know the reform tradition and, and especially Calvin in particular, we've been called actually a, a very pneumatological tradition. Calvin was called a theologian of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because of the emphasis on the third use of the law, that this is the life in the spirit, as Tommy was just saying, and this is the way in which Christians ought to walk. And one of the general general ways in which the Calvinian or Reformed tradition is distinguished from the Lutheran tradition is that for the Lutheran tradition, the second use of the law is considered primary because we they want us to, to be pointed back to that sort of existential moment at which we recognize our sins before God and we recognize our need for Jesus. Whereas the Reformed's emphasis actually is on on now that you're united to Jesus, walk in him, walk in the footsteps of the Holy Spirit. Justification is important, but union with Jesus also gives us sanctification. You need, you need both. Union with Jesus means that you get these two benefits and justification and sanctification cannot be separated from one another. One implication of that is that all, all, all pre- <laughs> see, now we, can, now we can see all of these beautiful hand motions. Gray, Gray is gesturing to Paul Jean to start talking now. Yeah, I was trying to pass the ball. I, see, like, I'm about to, I'm going to pass the buck here. No, but I am thoroughly just enjoying listening to you guys. Every week. Well, that didn't work. I'll just resist that mightily. Go ahead. When, when you talk about the unity gray of justification and sanctification, it raises this kind of preaching question because I was trained, you know, early on, even before seminary days, this, this stark contrast between the law and the gospel. What that meant is you preach justification by faith. That's the center of your sermon. And, the, and what the law does, maybe you were getting at this, Scott, kind of in, in your opening. Uh, and what the law does is it just shows it shows me my sin and my need for Christ, and then you and the gospel comes in and says you you are forgiven, and all of that is of course true, but then it leaves us with this hole like okay how do I preach obedience, and and furthermore how do I preach obedience as something that is an implication of the gospel as a, a when Jesus says abide in me and grow in obedience that isn't. In addition to the gospel, that is a gospel proclamation. You, this is you mm-hmm. can be transformed. You can have newness of life, and you can live that out in a life of love towards your neighbor. You know that this this commandment, this new commandment, as John puts it, is a gospel uh, commandment. So it raises the preaching question too: How do we preach obedience without being legalistic? Yeah. One good resource for this is actually a book edited by John O'Linbaugh at Cambridge. It's called God's Two Words, and it's the Lutheran and Reformed tradition in conversation. And one of the chapters in that book is by Kelly Capick. And one of the things that he pointed out was that for the Reformed, we have to finish the sermon. You can't just end it with forgiveness because you go to the next step, which is now you've been forgiven. How do you now walk in the Spirit? How do you now obey the gospel? And like Tommy said, the fact that we can obey the law now is good news. You don't have to live in the sin that you used to, to, to be in. You're redeemed from that, and now you can have a different way of life. So finish the sermon. Don't feel guilty in giving our commandments in the sermon. Mm. That's great. One of my you know, jobs, I think, in the Old Testament department is to show that this is not merely a New Testament reality. This is true in the Old Testament, too. That The way that you are saved, according to Paul, is 
whether you're in the Old Testament before the cross or after the cross, the way that you are saved is by faith, right? And uh, he likens it to Abraham. He goes all the way back before there's any sacraments of the Old Testament. He makes a point this is before circumcision. So you can't say that Abraham was saved by circumcision. He's saved by faith, right? Citing back to Genesis 15. And yet, of course, when we go back and read Genesis 15, we realize that Abram is now called to live out his faith by living according to the commands of the Lord and trusting in the Lord. Two chapters later in Genesis 17, the Lord says, walk blamelessly before me. This is what it means to be in covenant with me. And we're reminded that's not how he's saved. That's the point that Paul's making. He's not saved by his works. He's saved by faith. And yet that faith is going to be informed and guided by God's special revelation. That is his revelation of himself and his character in the Torah, which can be translated law, as we've been talking about. I think it's interesting because we find this throughout the Old Testament. We find this in uh, you know, Psalm 1, uh, such a well-known psalm, blessed is the man, and he doesn't, doesn't walk in sin, he doesn't live in sin, his life is not marked by sin, but rather by faith in the Lord, right? How does that find, find expression? Because he meditates on God's revelation day and night. And then what is he like? He's like a tree planted by a stream of water. And this, this picture here of where life comes, where regeneration comes from, is really important, I think, in this broader conversation. Because in Psalm 1, of course, it's through the regenerate heart, and the way that that's articulated is by roots that are drawing water from the stream, right? New life is seen and expressed through green leaves and the fruit of the tree, right? The fruit that bears its fruit in its season. No one could read that. No good farmer would read that and say the tree gets its life from the fruit, right? It doesn't get its life from the actions. It doesn't get its life from living righteously. It gets its life from the regenerate heart, right? And yet it finds expression in fruit. I mean, there's, there's, there's such a, I think there's such an important sort of reformed ordo salutis mm-hmm. showing yeah. up there in the psalmist ordo salutis that he has there where water comes to the heart, regenerating the tree, giving it, letting it bear good fruit, you know? So this is not just a Christian idea. This is not something that, that was introduced by Jesus and the apostles. This is something that, of course, Jesus fulfills, but has been present throughout God's word. This has been the dynamic throughout redemptive history. I mean, teaching, preaching, and pastoring this is, uh, I like our discussion because I think it's much more comprehensive. And it gets uh, complicated, but when you actually do the actual pastoring and preaching here, because the minute you begin to press so your obedience does matter. And I think the New Testament really does work with this. Um, and I think the default is, well, let's not be legalistic. But I don't know, Tommy, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But I actually, I think the Bible, especially New Testament, goes out of its way to at least say two things. If your life is not abounding in good works, that is obedience, then there is a serious problem. Like, uh, because what you have said already, we want to delight the Father. And so there should be at least a desire to pursue obedience. And then I like the accent that you gave as well, that we have new power because we are a new creation. So this is why the absence of both a disposition to obey the law and a kind of newness and like ability should be alarming, right? Um, in my experience, a lot of people simply go in these directions. Well, thank, thank God for Jesus. He's forgiven me. And it sort of stops there. And I think that relates to what you were talking about, the justification alone. But then the other part that's strange is, well, God knows my heart. And um, 
I tend to say, I agree. I think God knows her heart, but you probably don't know your heart. <laughs> and one of the concrete ways that God, I think, helps us to see whether, in fact, we have been regenerated is to have a longitudinal view of where we are on the spectrum of obedience. You know? yeah. So, well. I, I like that. I, would, I wanted to hear from you because while I feel like theologically, I know how to explain that. Theologically, I know how to frame that discussion, how to preach law without being legalistic. In practice, in preaching, it's really challenging. I, I preached yesterday and I found this, you know, I was reminded again, I feel like uh, when I started in the church, when God called me to be a pastor, he, he called me to preach twice a week. And then after five years of that, he called me to preach once a week, and now I get to preach six times a year. So I think God is gradually uh, whittling down the number of times I get to preach <laughs> in, in my career. But I, I still find it really challenging to do that, to, to, to do the, you know, the law points out my sin. It shows me the forgiveness of, of Christ, and then I must obey him, that last part, to preach that without being legalistic. Theologically, I've got a category. Um, whenever I preach the commandments of God, I preach them as coming through and in and fulfilled by Christ. He is the one who perfectly obeyed these commandments. He pleased his father in heaven. He is the one who defines what the commandment is. And so that essentially what I'm saying, do the law, I'm saying imitate Jesus. Like I have all these different ways that the law points me to Christ and is fulfilled in Christ. But then pragmatically preaching that in a way that tells the congregation, obey, but this isn't in you. It's because of your leaning on Christ and because of your consideration of Christ. That's really challenging. The, the problem generally is not the lack of clarity and revelation. Uh, I think God is actually very clear. Like a, a good example of obeying is if we are a new creation in Jesus, we should actually be very generous with our money. The, mm, the Bible right. is so clear. Or you know, one of the themes that we don't talk enough about is if you are a Christian, you should actually have a very high view of uh, submission to uh, biblical authority. You know? And so um, I think that what the human tendency is to suppose that, well, it's hard to discern what God wants me to do right now. And yeah, I grant that there's definitely a place for wisdom in my ministry, but the way I try to advise at least my congregation members, first do what God has clearly commanded you to do. For instance, aspire to keep your vows as a spouse. You know, aspire to keep your vows if you baptize your children. Uh, be a good member at church. You know, do And then the other stuff, I think uh, that might seem less clear, become more clear as you uh, do that. But yeah, really, um, I, I think there's this, I don't know what the full history and the sociological perspective on my, this might be, but there seems to be such, I think, um, aversion towards emphasizing the necessity of obedience, which I don't think follows the New Testament trajectory at all. I think that's absolutely right, Paul. You know, one of the 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 arcs in which this conversation often goes with me in a pastoral setting is something like this. Someone comes in and is saying uh, that they're struggling with legalism because the law condemns them because, because the Lord knows their heart, right? And there's a sense of condemnation. And of course, when they became a Christian, they felt that great relief of salvation by faith alone and the imputed righteousness of Christ. And 
they want to get back to that. And I think there's something to be said for the fact that this is an, it's an incredible thing. I mean, that part of the good news of Jesus Christ is amazing. And there's a reason why we keep going back to it, right? It's, it is the, it's the groundwork for everything else that comes afterwards. And so the fact that you might be saved, even though you know you don't deserve it, right, because of what Jesus has done is an amazing, amazing truth. And yet what I also kind of see people doing then is therefore not moving beyond that into this broader discussion of, okay, so now that you've been saved, you know, uh, now that the spirit has indwelled you, the spirit of Christ, as Paul calls it, don't you think you'll start to desire the things out of either gratitude, to use Heidelberg's formulation of it, you know, or just out of the transformation that comes from your union with Christ, don't you think you'll start to desire the things that God desires? And this is where I think the rub comes, because they say yes, and then unspoken, and sometimes it's spoken, usually not, it's yes, but I don't. Like, I don't desire the things of God. And then I think now we're getting at the rub, mm-hmm. right? And that's where you want to say, then maybe we should be praying for that. Right? Maybe you should be going to God's word, being steeped in, his, in the scripture, going to your Lord and Savior and saying, Lord, I want to be like you. I, I know I should want to be like you, but I'm not wanting to. Transform my heart. Draw me to you. you know, lead me in your everlasting way, as the psalmist says okay, in Psalm 139. Right? You show me where I'm hurtful. You show me where I can find life. And there's, there, I think you have a really life-giving answer to this that gets down to the rub, which is that people still want to sin, even though they're Christians, and that's hard, and that's, that's shameful, and that brings about guilt and fatigue, and they need to be reminded, no, you're saved in Christ, you're beloved, you're, you're received as the Father receives the Son, and yet also, now that you're enjoying that, don't you want to see your heart conformed accordingly? Yeah, yeah, and and that's that Romans seven kind of debate. I, you know, I I um I remember when you were saying like uh, when you were talking that way, Scott. It triggered for me something my youth pastor told me when I was like fourteen. You know, those like little phrases that stick with you for I was going to say thirty years, but it's getting longer than that now. <laughs> <laughs> for more than thirty years, more than three decades. Uh, for, um, the uh, phrase he uses yeah i don't want to obey but i want to want to mm-hmm. and that that is a sign that christ is at work amen and, that, and i i feel that daily and i think that's what paul is getting at in rome whatever the details of what paul's talking about in romans 7 that experience of that which i want to do i do not do and that which i do not want to do that is what i want to do that that experience there that Paul has is one that's common to the Christian life. Which is why, and it's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but I think exegetically why that has to be understood as the voice of a Christian, mm-hmm. because it, it, it's it's so true to what we see throughout Scripture, but also, of course, in our own personal lives, right, is that struggle between the, the saint and the sinner, you know, that struggle between the two ages that is happening within every Christian heart, right, where you're both breathing the fresh air of the new heavens and new earth, and yet you're still in this body of death yeah yeah that's the correct take of Romans seven yeah that'd be if anyone's looking for the answer key that's that's the the right take yeah (laughs) i mean read elsewhere that it's not like that then they're wrong (laughs) (laughs) okay i did leave i i will say that in that discussion in class last week i said my to my students that all three views are orthodox and you 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 are free here fair enough i I disagree with you but gray (laughs) no (laughs) all views are, are 
pure vanilla or beneficial. Yeah, okay. Another category, uh, maybe switching the discussion a little bit. <laughs> that, that, that was a joke. Let it be understood to the hearer. Now that, that, now that Gray's here, he's, he's tackling all of us theologically. All right. Um, another category that I think is helpful to have on the table is, especially when we talk about law, obedience, this, the language of law and obedience and commandment kind of sets this discussion of sanctification in the realm of moving from disobedience to obedience, which is totally true and a good realm to be having this discussion. But there's another layer here in scripture, a layer that we see in the life of Christ and the, a layer that we see in our own lives of moving from uh, onto greater and greater maturity from immaturity to maturity. And it may be, you know, obedience to the law or, uh, or to, to shift the language. The imitation of Christ looks different for a 12 year old mm. than it does for a 50 year old. You know, the, the level of sacrifice that's required of temptations that have to be resisted. Those are going to be stronger when you're in your thirties, your forties, your 50, you know, the, these, you grow in your ability to image Christ, even though you weren't disobedient before, there is a higher call as we grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. And I find that a very helpful way of processing sanctification. Maybe God, you, know, this, you see this in Thessalonians, the Thessalonians are doing really well. Paul keeps telling them, you understand this, you know this, you love this, I love this about you. And then his exhortation is, do this all the more. And there's this kind of greater and greater imagery or image bearingness that I bear as a Christian as I go from grace to glory. Yeah. But this is so, so the law is so helpful. It's um, two, two ways. One, many, I think, professing Christians think they're mature, but they have this sort of preset, I would say, cultural understanding of what spiritual maturity looks like. You know, mm -hmm. It's usually the product of their own upbringing and so forth. And so it's been interesting for me to see some people who are very zealous about, I would say helpful habits, but they're not necessarily prescribed in the Bible. You know, uh, you know I'll give you an example, like in some Asian cultures, like morning prayer, wake, waking up at five, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's good. And I, you know, kudos to it, but um, how do you do that? Paul? No, I don't. Do I'm just being honest. I work. You wake so up at five, but I you do don't pray. It's morning working. No, because I'm always praying. That's why I don't. <laughs> you pray unceasingly. Uh, but, um, but then it's interesting that they'll do that, and yet they won't observe something like as clear as be kind to your wife. Mm -hmm. You see this weird spirituality that's actually very spiritualistic, but feeling through scripture. Or another reason why the law is so helpful is um, I've noticed different people groups find some parts of the law easier than other parts. And so what they tend to do is they focus on where they naturally excel, right? Um, and then they don't really try to grow in the other areas that mm -hmm. the law prescribes. And so again, like the law is helpful because it does help us, you know, like it almost gives us a chart to use to see how and where we need to grow. Yeah. Yeah. I think of it like, to use one last analogy, you know, you think about a, a father with a son, for instance, just to use that example. Um, the father 
loves the son and shows the expression of the love of the son by sharing himself with his son, right? And if the father just said, I love you, for instance, let's say the father is like, you know, a baseball player, a professional baseball player. And the father tells the son, I love you. Uh, You know, the son lives in his house. He enjoys being there and all the benefits of being in the father's house. And yet the father never like shares the desire of his heart with his son, never goes out and says, hey, you want to play some, you want to throw a catch? You want to learn how to throw a ball? Because the son obviously sees this is what the father loves. The father loves baseball. He loves, he loves playing this game. He's great at it. You would think that the father at some point would show the son how to play baseball, right? In other words, this would be an expression of love. A way of, and I hear this, you hear this with, uh, you hear this with in, in the pastoral counseling room all the time. I know that, but you hear this, um, the sense of like, my father was always present, but he didn't really share his heart with us. You know, it was obvious that his loves were elsewhere and that kind of thing. One way that a father would show love would be by going out and playing catch with his son and showing his son how to throw a ball and how to catch a ball, and how to how baseball works. I'm not talking about some kind of like living vicarious way or something like that, but in a loving way, right? Yeah. And I think of the same thing with our father in heaven. He, he loves us. We are in the house, those of us who are Christians, right? We, we're, we're, we have received the inheritance of the son. But what's more than that in the life of the Christian is that the father actually shares with us his loves. It shares with us his desires. And we receive his love. And then again, this is a very Psalm 19 way, 119 way of thinking about Psalm 19 for that matter too. But Psalm 119 way of thinking about um, the Old Testament law is that this is God sharing his character with you. He says, I'm holy, you be holy. I'm loving and I'm giving. I'm self-giving. You, you be loving and self-giving. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm righteous. I desire justice. You desire justice. And that now it's no longer in the context of condemnation. It's not if you don't do this, um, you know, you won't be, have a place in my household. But rather, you're in the house. You're receiving the inheritance. And part of the inheritance is receiving the loving relationship of the father and, and responding accordingly, you know. And, you know, all of these kind of analogies are sort of helpful for me and become more apparent just as being a dad, for yeah. one. It's kind of seeing how this stuff actually works out in a human family, you know. And so I'm thinking about this relationship with God and realizing that, to put it in the, in the words of Gray's predecessor, Howard Griffith, you know, he said, when God is your enemy, then the law is your enemy. But when God is your friend, or in this case, when God is your father, then the love, the law is your friend, right? The love is just the revelation of the character of your father. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's a life-giving thing. That's a helpful analogy. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> not give credit to you. <laughs> I was going to say, Tommy, about preaching, you know, you know, the value corresponds to scarcity. So I wouldn't think that your preaching is getting more scarce. Mm-hmm. It's becoming Probably more valuable. Though, there is more a clear trend. <laughs> The value is increasing, the demand, you know, will follow suit. Yep. It's a good spin. Well, thanks everybody for joining us for this conversation around the Ten Commandments. It's been a joy for us, and hopefully it's been edifying and beneficial to you as well. Um, So on behalf of all the faculty here at the Faculty Podcast, thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about RTS Washington, please go to rts.edu forward slash Washington. You can start a conversation with us there about how to get enrolled and find out more about classes. 
If you'd like to ask a question to the faculty that we'd answer in a later podcast, go ahead and go to the show notes uh, for this show, and you'll see a link there where you can fill out a form and pose a question to the faculty. It's been great being with you all. We love these conversations together, and we love hearing from you as well. So until next week, take care. pleasure and a joy to be with you over the last few months, and we look forward to our next series. We don't have one picked, but I was thinking uh, that we just all do a live D&D. Live, live Dungeons and Dragons. Live, live Dungeons and Dragons. Real play. <laughs> I thought you meant Death Bath Revolution. But. <laughs> That'll work, too. I think, I think either one will bring we, we can play D&D, Death Bath Revolution. We can play a lot We've been playing a lot of Injustice too on the Xbox as well. Oh, so, okay. Uh, we can, I can take, a bit, take a deal down on that.